Renegades. Check it out. I want to let you know something. Before I had a podcast, I so badly wanted a podcast, but my brain with all of its thinking thoughts was like, you don't know how to do that. And that sounds like a lot of work. Well, guess what? It wasn't once I found out about Anchor. Anchor allows for you to record your podcast. It's super easy. You just use their platform. They distribute it to all of your other platforms like Apple, Spotify, Stitch. And um, let me tell you, one thing I did learn, there's a lot of platforms out there and you do not want to sit around taking your time uploading your episodes one by one. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast from your phone. Right now, I'm recording this from my phone. Not to mention the tools like the music, like intro music and little sound effects. Like, how fun is that? It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Go now. If you're at least, if you've ever thought, I want a podcast, I'm telling you, it's really this e- easy. Anchor.fm. Go to the Anchor app on your phone or go to anchor.fm and make it happen. I did it. You can definitely do it. Hey, you. Welcome to Modern Renegades. I'm your host, Ashley M. Kelch. This is a life coaching podcast. Yes, I am a certified life coach, and it is for the person who is looking for personal expansion and evolution. Each week, we will explore mental and spiritual practices that will help you regain your sense of wonder and recognize your own wisdom. I got explorers, everyday warriors, you know, modern renegades, to inquire, seek, reveal, and live a more awakened, purpose-driven life. Let's get to it. Renegades, how are you, my sweet quarantined lovelies? Hmm? Are you doing well? I have to say, despite everything going on, life here with my kids, the dogs, Pinkus, our family is doing pretty well. Um, Nick decided that he wanted a mullet. And it seemed unfair that someone like me, who shaved her head, you know, a week into quarantine, would tell him that that's a bad idea. And his sister was incredibly excited because she actually thought that she wanted a mullet, but then rethought that. And I was like, thank God. Um, But was, like I said, very excited to give someone a mullet haircut. So these uh, these would be some highlight moments from my life, the ones that maybe you haven't seen on Instagram. (laughs) Just making the best of our time right now. Um, We cannot complain, but that doesn't mean I won't. No, you know, I'm kidding. I aim for conscious complaining. Rather than complaining, I'm actually doing this thing where I'm trying to analyze all the information and then I call Laurel and I like dump it on her. It turns out you should ask your friends if that's okay to do first. You could freak them out or fuck up their mood. Much like complaining, ask for 15 minutes, make it conscious, and then shut the fuck up. Because <laughs> if your friends don't want to hear what you've got to say about things, you can always do the alternative. You can give yourself an allotted amount of time to think the thoughts. Just remember to give yourself equal airtime for the opposite. Um, or you can air them on a podcast, like I'm about to do. I've been allowing myself to think all the thoughts, like, what the fuck is happening right now? What part of the movie am I in? And wait, are the voices coming from inside the house? Like, seriously, I'm wondering, like, Adam McKay, who who's going to do this movie? Where are the documentaries going to be coming from? Because I can't wait for that part 
in a few years, five, ten, I don't even know. I think we'll all be interested in watching those. Um, also, I've been talking to people about, you know, what they've got going on. I'm excited anytime I see anyone from across the park. Um, and I'm like, hey, what's up? And did you know that people like chose their quarantine crew, like an alignment, if you will? Yeah. Did you do this? I didn't even consider this. One guy told me that he and his wife made a pact with a couple of friends, one of which has a boat. Let's just say they're looking forward to summer. Uh, they get together every week. They play games. They cook. It made me realize I didn't even consider a strategy. I just kind of assumed it would be my family. And to think I could have actually potentially included more people, maybe not included my own kids. I mean, could you imagine? Mm, sorry. <laughs> sorry, you guys. I know. I know I'm your mom, but I have to be realistic. I need my friends during a time like this. Now that, you guys, would be super cold-blooded. Um, but on a more serious note, next time I'm going to make sure that I do have someone to have sex with, um, that I align with some pals, and that we're stocked up on the Clorox wipes. I mean, now I know what I need in a pandemic. Lesson learned. Learning to be calculated and strategic. <laughs> so anyway, that's just a bit of this brain on the corona. The other part of my brain has been starting and stopping podcasts like you wouldn't believe. There are no less than five drafts on my computer. I've had several topics that I've wanted to talk about, coach on, uh, but try as I might, I couldn't get into a flow. I found myself sort of realizing like I've kind of been living the quarantine life. Like I work from home. Um, I mean, it's not that I'm not social, but... I think you guys probably remember in February, March, um, I had started grieving becoming an empty nester and I'd spent basically three or four weeks just hanging out by myself. I mean, it was, I certainly had gone out, but the day after my birthday, I was like, it's time to ground down. And I did, uh, which, you know, no regrets, but I certainly didn't think I was going to be told a month later that I had to keep doing that. Um, but I experienced an entire grieving process over not having my kids home for our weekly dinners, them going out and being on their own, and now it would appear that um, we are now having three meals and two snacks a day together. We are one another's only friend group. <laughs> We're spending all the time together. Empty nesting is something that is not in the foreseeable future. I may have been a little bit premature to grieve that. Sometimes I think that the universe or God, whatever you call your higher power, has a funny way of making you aware of these things. God's like, oh, oh, you're sad because your kids are growing up and you're all alone now? Okay, here, here you go. You get them 24-7. <laughs> it reminded me to stop wishing for things to be different than they are, to allow for the plan, because there is a bigger plan. And honestly, like, I'm not really interested in fucking with the plan anymore. I'm starting to collect enough data and evidence to prove that I don't always know what's best. <laughs> I don't know anyone who isn't experiencing some form of uncertainty, grief, fear, sadness, or general anxiety right now. People are consumed with worry. The uncertainty has our brain working in overdrive. Some of you have had pay cuts, you're working from home, you're homeschooling, your schedule is a complete 180, and it's overwhelming. 
The plans we had have been stripped away, leaving some grieving for the things we won't have and mourning the losses. Some are still hanging on, arguing with reality, refusing to accept these current circumstances. And some, some have just completely checked out when we went on lockdown. Which brings me to today's episode. Being part of this experience and observing myself emotionally has reminded me of two similar experiences I had with my first husband, our divorce and his death. Today marks 12 years since he passed. I'm sure that has something to do with me drawing the parallels. The main difference, though, is that I'm fully here for this pandemic, this quarantine, the economic shutdown situation we're in. I'm riding all the waves and feelings that are coming up. It can feel a little manic at times. There are some days that I'm like, I am not experienced enough for this wave. It's just, yeah, that's big. That's fucking crazy, and that's big, and I, mm mm-mm. And I ride it. And then there are other days when it's flat, and I have the urge to paddle in and go look for another spot. But I stay, and I wait. And then there are the days when the waves are choppy, and I want to complain, but I don't. I'm just riding these waves, and I'm trying to be a little gentle with myself on the really big ones that feel impossible and on the ones that may seem boring. This was not my experience after my divorce or when Chris died. That was more like paddling out while a massive set was rolling in during a storm and then trying to bail, but it was too late. It would just get wrecked. I'd be underwater. I'd have no idea what direction was up. It's kind of like that end scene in Point Break with Patrick Swayze and cute little baby Keanu. You know, but that was more like he was going to go die in his passion surfing, but they were super big and it looked really scary. And I think that that's sort of, I was like, we're just going to go do that. We're just going to just go big or go home. Um, Yeah, I'm just going to call it that. So today I'm going to share with you a little bit about what I went through when I got divorced and after he died, Chris. Um, And I'm just letting you know, I might cry. My feelings are fever pitch these days. And if you're not in the mood for sad, I totally get it. But I do believe there is a message here and that it could be useful. All right, so let's just get started with part one, divorce. (laughs) Was anyone else too optimistic about their divorce? I think I might have been. Maybe I wasn't being realistic, but I assumed that we would still be friends after the divorce. Not that I would be emotionally stopped in my tracks. I had never imagined the man I married, the father of my children, children, being so enraged that he would lash out for, I don't know, a year and a half in the most unpredictable, crazy ways. Nor did I imagine that I would become a person who would freeze in fear, that I would be so overcome with feelings of trapped and controlled, or that I would believe the most awful things this person would tell me about myself, that I would become frozen, unable to comprehend what to even do. I never knew what to expect or what he was going to do next, and try as I might, Every encounter with him would backfire. My friends, family, our community, they witnessed what was happening in total disbelief, and yet there was nothing I could do. Someone recommended I start recording all of our calls so I could document his behavior, save all the letters and the emails he was sending me. It was like a part-time job. I will state for the record (laughs) that upon reflection and review of my actions, 12 years later, I can totally see why he lost his mind but his actions were still just slightly unacceptable. I 
just don't want everyone thinking that this is the usual story of an ex-wife talking shit about her ex-husband who is dead and can't defend himself. I know I'm not perfect, and I wasn't perfect. However, this is my side of my emotional experience in the way that I remember it. Anyway, the truth is, I was looking into restraining orders. I had even considered the possibility that I would have to leave Maui and live on the mainland without my kids. I had never felt so hopeless in my life. I had told one of my best friends that I wouldn't care if he died, that the only way out was if one of us died. Knowing what I know now, I can honestly say I was in a state of trauma and locked in fear. But then one day, in March of 2008, Chris called. He wanted to talk about arranging picking up our son Nick from my place on my night to take him to baseball practice. He was going to be coaching the team. It was the first time since our divorce that we were working together outside the prearranged schedule. First time we were working together at all. I was cautious, but there was a change in his tone and behavior that suggested maybe, just maybe he was genuinely interested in working together as parents. Over the next few weeks, we started communicating again. I was in shock, to be honest. We were discussing what we wanted for the kids, how we could co-parent, discuss the possibilities of moving to the mainland. I felt like I could breathe for the first time, that life was actually taking a turn. I told Ryan, my boyfriend and future husband, I think we might actually all have Thanksgiving together. For some reason, I was convinced that if we could all sit down for dinners and holidays, we were doing it right. A few weeks later, the night before Chris had his stroke, we were all together for Nick's first baseball game. Some of our close friends came down. People were shocked to see Chris and I talking and laughing, and of Ryan, who was a photographer, taking pictures of that evening. One in particular is a picture of Chris putting Nick's catcher's gear on him. The photos focused on Nick, with Chris faded in the background. That evening was more than perfect. The next morning, Ryan woke me up from my nightmare. A nightmare. I was crying hysterically in my sleep. He held me while I told him about my dream. I was in my parking lot. It was dark, with the exception of a street lamp. And as I was loading my bike into the back of the truck, this man with a beard and a long robe came up to me with his arms open. I asked him what he was doing, and he said, I just want to give you a hug. Completely freaked out, I said, I don't know you. Please get away from me. And he replied, Everyone knows me here. I looked around my parking lot, and I saw my neighbors walking around. They began awkwardly waving to him. The imagery looked like it was out of that music video, Black Hole Sun, by Soundgarden. It was so weird. I looked to my condo, and I saw the light on, and I thought, if I scream, someone will save me. But I couldn't. I climbed into the bed of my truck, and tears flowed down my face. And as he stood in front of me with his arms extended, he just said, it's going to be okay. I want to hug you, that's all. Ryan and I both had plans that morning to meet up with people and were already running late. I quickly got out the door and loaded my bike into my truck and drove across town to meet my friend for a 20-mile ride while Ryan went the opposite direction to surf. I was totally shook up and distracted by my dream while my friend and I got our bikes ready. Once we were riding, I felt myself settle in just a bit. It was early and the air was cool. I happened to look down at my handlebars where my phone was mounted and I noticed in this call from Chris, and I thought, that's odd. 
He must need something for the kids. I pulled over on the highway to call him back, with my bike between my legs, traffic flying by on my left, and the waves crashing on my right. I listened to him as he told me he wasn't feeling well and was wondering if I could come get the kids and take them to school. I said, sure, but I'm on my bike and I'm going to need 20 to 30 minutes to get back. He said, no, baby, you don't understand. I'm not okay. His voice, his words, I knew then that he wasn't okay. My thoughts went straight to my babies. I asked him where Nick was, who was seven at the time. He said, he's right here. I asked him to put him on the phone. I said, Nick, baby, I need you to be a big boy right now, okay? And he said, Mama, is my daddy dying? And I said, no, 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 just listen. The ambulance is going to come, and you're going to need to let them in. And when your sister wakes up, please get her. I'll be right there, okay? Okay. Okay, now let me talk to your dad. Chris got back on the phone, and I told him to call 911, to call his brother, that I was going to call Ryan and head straight over as well. He said, okay. I raced back to my truck and headed their direction. Of course, traffic was doing what traffic always does in the morning. I couldn't believe I was stuck in traffic. The entire time I thought, is this really happening? Finally, I made it to my exit, and as I went to make my right turn, the ambulance with Chris passed me and went left. Time slowed down as I watched the van pass me, and I thought, is this our story? Is this how it ends for us? I couldn't believe my eyes, but at the same time I was entirely focused on my kids, their well-being, and I couldn't think about anything else other than them and making sure they were okay. When I pulled up to my old house, the kids came running out into the driveway. They told me about the ambulance and their dad. I looked at Ryan, at Chris's brother and his wife, in total disbelief. But then something came over me. In that moment, I heard my voice. It wasn't my usual thinking-all-the-thoughts voice. It was a very clear voice that said to me, Move forward until told not to. What happened to me over the next 24 hours is almost indescribable. I was moved by something greater than me. God, the universe, consciousness, again, whatever you call it. It was guiding me. I thought it best to send the kids to school and only mention what happened to a few of our close friends until we knew more. I called and told Chris's best friend, Dan. He and his wife were a couple friends who we traveled together, shared holidays, you know the sort. After the divorce, my relationship with them was strained, to say the least. You'd never known any of that during this call. Dan headed to the hospital to be with Chris right after we hung up. I spoke with my dad. His words to this day I've not forgotten. Death is knocking on the door, honey. I'm sorry this is happening to you all. Chris is a good man. And I hope to get a shake his hand when I come out in a few weeks. Nothing seemed real. Time no longer existed the way that it did. When I finally heard from the hospital and was able to talk to Chris, they confirmed he had had a stroke, but he was stable. I asked him if I could bring the kids over to see him. He insisted that the, he didn't want the kids to see him like that, with the tubes and on drugs. I insisted that it was no trouble, that we would be on the other side near the hospital that evening to get a kitten, and we could just drop in for hugs and kisses. They would want to just see their dad regardless. And he said no. And I said, if you change your mind, let me know, and I'll call you in a bit. Nick and Faith spoke with their dad that afternoon, 
after school, asking him about the ambulance, the hospital. Words and sentences that sounded so innocent out of their mouths, yet had a new meaning in my mind. A few hours later, we were at the Humane Society, playing with kittens, trying to decide which one we would be bringing home. This was something we had already planned on doing, and like I said, I was moving forward until I was told not to. While we were finalizing the paperwork, my phone rang. It was Joanne, Dan's wife. I thought, maybe she's just checking in. If she calls back, I'll take it. I sent it to voicemail. She called right back. I walked outside into the parking lot, and I listened to her tell me that Chris had another stroke, but that this one was massive. And as I looked around this dark parking lot, I thought, oh my god. And I could feel the tears starting to stream down my face. I looked up, and there was a streetlight, and I found myself glancing around, and it all felt so familiar. I knew it from my dream. That man trying to comfort me, and I just knew right then and there that he was going to die. I had Ryan take me to the hospital and go home with the kids and our new kitten. I had to be with Chris. When I entered the hospital room, he was lying there, induced in a coma to prevent further mini-strokes from happening. He looked so peaceful. I held his hand and I whispered out to him how much I loved him, how much our babies loved him. And I promised him that no matter what, I would honor him and his legacy as a father. Because regardless of the fact that this man was the worst ex-husband for the first year of our divorce, he was the world's best father. And there was not a person who knew him who didn't think that. Over the next six hours, we waited while they tried performing a surgery to reduce the swelling and remove the clots. This is when we discovered that one of Chris's arteries in his neck never fully matured and that the other artery was overcompensating, doing a majority of the work, and that had he not been as active and healthy as he was, he wouldn't have lived for as long as he did, and that there was nothing that could be done. We could just wait. And so we did. I went home around five in the morning and I laid in bed. I couldn't sleep. I didn't know what I was going to tell my kids or how I was going to hide what I knew to be true when it was written all over my face. But I continued moving forward. I got the kids ready from sc for school. I informed their teachers and the staff of the situation. People in the community started to hear and were showing up with food. Some were calling. Unbeknownst to me at the time, my phone wasn't actually receiving all the calls, which was truly a blessing because I didn't know what to say to anyone. I just cleaned my house. I laid down to close my eyes. There was a sort of exhaustion I was experiencing, but I didn't sleep. I felt out of my mind and body. I can't tell you how long that moment lasted, but that voice that said we move forward until we're told not to told me to go be with my children. I shot out of bed and told Ryan he had to get me to the children right away. I called the school and I requested that they bring them out front so I could be with them and get them home. As soon as we pulled up, my phone rang. It was Chris's brother. I looked at my babies as I listened to him tell me that there was nothing else that they could do, that he had been having many strokes despite being in an induced coma, and that his brain would never recover. 
I hung up the phone, and I held my kids on the sidewalk at their school. How do a four- and a seven-year-old comprehend the news that their dad has died? That the life they thought they had, one with a dad, was no longer their life? That their plans were canceled? Their futures? Totally unknown. I spent the last 24 hours being guided by something greater than me. I felt Chris the entire time. I knew before the call came that it was over. But hearing the words that he died put me right back in my body and mind. The unknown, now known. If only we as humans could just process things on a spiritual level without our brains. Thoughts about how it couldn't be a coincidence that we came together the way we did over the last six weeks. That something greater did that. And how fucking grateful I felt. Because I became so keenly aware of how petty and childish we had become. And that none of that mattered at the end of the day. The schedules, the money, the contracts, the words. He was hurt. And God, did I do some incredibly selfish shit to provoke him and his anger. How could I have been so childish? I can't believe that I would have said that I didn't care if he would die. Never have I been more wrong and more humbled in my life. And I just couldn't stop the thoughts. And they came from every direction. And this is why I'm talking about this. Our world, much like the world today, changed in an instant. What was would never be again. Things would not go back to normal. There would be a new normal. And I had no idea what that looked like because this possibility, my children losing their father, was never a consideration. It wasn't in the plans. And there was absolutely nothing I could do. But rather than allowing myself to feel our loss, to sit in the uncertain, to grieve for the man who gave me my children, to allow myself to feel humiliated for how childish we were, I judged myself. I shamed myself, and I let my brain go to town. Emotionally and mentally, I believed if I didn't keep it together, we wouldn't make it. That there was no time to be sad or grieve. That it was my job to make sure we survived and I couldn't be weak. I had to keep my shit together. There wasn't any part of me that thought I should talk to someone or get emotional support. I didn't even know what trauma was. And even if I did, I believe that I probably would have argued that the, I was experiencing it. I would have said, this is life. It's hard. No one tells you that when you white-knuckle your way through the pain, you miss the point. Not to mention, and this is no different from the current situation a lot of us are facing today, when one thing happens, it can trigger a series of events that seem completely out of your control. Things that are suddenly your problems... Problems you're not prepared for. This is when I started to hit the escape button harder and faster. I thought if we moved, we could start over. No one would know our story. I was convinced that everything would be fine if I got married. My kids would have a dad, a family. It would be the happy ending we all needed to be okay. I went from zero to 60. I moved my family to Austin, sight unseen. I decided to open a lingerie store. I got engaged. I thought I was doing everything I needed to. I got all the things in place so no one would miss what they had lost. I mean, 
miss the person of course but not feel the void and yet it wasn't enough i felt like i was swimming upstream for years because of what had happened i felt like no one could possibly understand what this is like they would never get it how could they even i didn't get it three years later my world was cracking around me it started with ryan I was convinced he wasn't the man that I should be married to, but I had no choice. It was too late. I had to, especially for my kids. They had already lost one dad. I couldn't take away another. I was convinced that I was the only source of income, and if Chris hadn't fucked me over, I wouldn't be in this position. I found myself getting more angry and resentful the longer Chris had been dead. I blamed him for us losing everything on Maui, for taking my name off the life insurance policy and forcing me to deal with his family. For fucking me over financially. I was a total victim. I would have thoughts like, I bet you're laughing about this from the grave. You're actually getting the last laugh. It never occurred to me that I was drinking to buffer or that the pills I was popping were a sign that maybe I wasn't okay or that me having an affair was not my fault. It is safe to say that I blew up my world. Four years after Chris died, spring of 2012, I found myself divorced for the second time. My affair was being tweeted about. I didn't know how I would make it, how I would take care of my kids by myself, support us. I felt like dying, like I might if something didn't give. There is no playbook on how to grieve, but I can tell you for sure that trying to avoid it is definitely not the solution. I reached out for help. This was the beginning of me trying to find my way back home. And it was painful. It was really dark and painful. The kids and I started talking about their dad and his death, their experience though, really for the first time. I gave up drinking, which was so necessary, but I was a bit disillusioned by this act. I thought if I quit drinking, my life is just gonna get better. Originally when I set out to heal, I believed my drinking was the problem. And listen, it certainly wasn't helping, but it was really just the symptom. I have five years of no drinking, and damn, if that didn't reveal to me some shit. It turns out just because you give up sugar or sex or drinking, you won't start feeling better. You actually start to feel worse because you will face every emotion you've been trying to avoid. We think we can escape these feelings by drinking and eating and fucking and shopping, and you just can't. You postpone it. And unfortunately, you pile on more hangovers, weight gain, credit card debt, shame. You're delaying the inevitable, and you're doing yourself a massive disservice. It took me 10 years to surrender to my world, to stop trying to make sense of why Chris passed and why this happened to me, to us, and to start seeing the beauty and the purpose in our loss. I wouldn't be the mother or the woman I am today otherwise, and I'm not just saying that. The relationship I have with Nick and Faith is the way it is because of everything that happened, and I wouldn't change that. We have the most beautiful life. I can sympathize with feeling like you can't handle the pain of grief and uncertainty. I hear you when you tell me that you want life to go back to normal, that you can't handle working from home and homeschooling, that you don't know what is going to happen and that you're scared. 
I just want you to know that it's okay to feel that way. And I'm going to encourage you to feel all of it. We are in the river of suck, but it is temporary. And learning how to row, row, row your boat gently up the stream is the work right now. To navigate these waters yourself as compassionately as you can. I've been listening to Wayne Dyer, and he talks about how easy it is for us to practice patience when we know what's going to happen. When we feel sure and certain about an outcome or our lives, we can just let things go. It's leaning into the unknown that can be really fucking uncomfortable. To practice faith when things are not going our way is what we need to learn. To be grateful for every little thing we still have. When we know our outcomes, it gives us a sense of control and certainty. The greatest struggle we are facing is that the idea of the plans we had, what we were supposed to be doing or where we're supposed to be going, doing all the busy things, we can't. And we felt safe in our jobs with our salaries and our schedules and our routines. All of it stripped away and we're forced just to be. And yet we argue with reality and we think if we can get things back to the way they were, that everything will be fine. Cultivating trust and practicing gratitude will prevent you from becoming resentful and angry. It will ease the suffering and the anxiety of what you are thinking might happen. Earlier this year, I attended a healing ceremony and received this bracelet that said SATA, SATA, I'm not quite sure. I just know that it's an acronym and it stands for Surrender, Allow, Trust, Accept. This has been my GPS since March 14th. Just a moment to surrender your feelings to what is happening right now will bring you a sense of peace, even if just momentarily. You can loosen your grip a bit around the struggle and allow. And if you can trust that no matter what the outcome is, that you will be okay, you can accept it. You're on the road, my friends. What if what is happening is for your greater good? We will come out of this, renegades, and we will be better than ever. We have a real opportunity to grow and evolve emotionally. Don't take the detour. Let's move through this river of suck with grace, not force. When the waves seem too big, approach them with ease. You will learn to ride them. It takes practice. And they never last that long. You were made for this. I promise. I want to thank you for listening to me today. I know it's not the usual. And I promise next week, or I shouldn't promise next week because we all know I take a minute to make these episodes happen. But we will go back to our normal, not crying, but coaching voice or storytelling voice. But in the meantime, I love you, Renegades. And I'm sending you a tight, energetic, consensual hug from six feet away. And I'm holding for 10 seconds. And I hope that you can feel that. Renegades, I'm currently offering my listeners and subscribers one-hour coaching sessions for just $125. Life may be on pause right now, but our brains and its struggles are not. Our brains are actually in overdrive. You feel like you can't control anything that's going on, including your emotions, and you're freaking out. I will guide your mind from feeling fucked to loved in just an hour. 
Let's not miss the chance to learn how to love our minds during this downtime. Renegades, we can do this together. I've got you. And if you're enjoying this podcast, I'd really love it if you'd head on over to Apple, Spotify, you know, whichever app, platform you like to listen on, and drop me a review, preferably a really good one with like five stars. What can I say? Ask for what you want. That's what I'm doing right now. And you need to head on over to the website. This is where you can sign up for the coaching hour on my homepage. And what's really great is that as soon as you get there, a cute little pop-up is going to come on and it's going to be a banner that says, Hey, subscribe to the weekly newsletter. All you have to do is go to www.ashleymkelsch.com. Plug your name in there. You don't want to miss my weekly type five things. They're kind of fun. You're kind of fun. So let's have fun. All right. Talk to you soon.